Hey everybody, it's me, Erica. And Rachel. And this is Story Crime. How are you today, Erica? Um, I'm not feeling good, but I'm going to power through. Uh, Sorry that this episode is late, but I've had a busy, busy week. So, And you have a busy weekend coming up, don't you? Yep. Going to Niagara Falls Comic Con, everyone. So if you're there, well, this will come out after we're there. So (laughs) maybe maybe you'll see us. I don't know. But I'm pretty excited because we don't get to go to them. COVID is taking that away from us. So yeah, your first one in a couple of years. Who are you excited to see? Okay. Or is there so, celebrities? Yeah, there is celebrities there. And the one that I'm most excited to see is Al Borland from Home Improvement. Oh my God. <laughs> That's and uh, uh, I think it's Heidi. Yeah, Heidi is the one that because Wendy I think was Pamela Anderson, so Heidi. Yeah, from time. Yeah, she's also going to be Love there. That. So, and Home Improvement is one of my favorite sitcoms of all time, and I have every season on DVD. So I might even go huh. with a little autograph. Maybe that's we'll a bit, that's random, but I like that. What's you didn't his catchphrase? That? I don't think so, Tim. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> Um, I love it. And we actually, we really got into Last Man Standing, which was home improvement, but with daughters. It was like the Tim Allen show that came out after, like, I don't know, like it was on, like, over the last 10 years anyways, it was on air. Oh, nice. uh, Is it still on? I don't think so. I don't Mm. think so. But it was okay. But it was basically home improvement, but with daughters. Yeah. Basically He needed to round out his resume. Yeah, I guess so. And I loved it because they did do like special guest appearances of the Home Improvement crew. So like the mom, uh, Patricia, what I forget her name. Anyway, she, uh, well, Jill, yeah. She came on for a couple episodes. I'm pretty sure Jonathan Taylor Thomas like came out of hiding. No way. To that guy. Um, I think he played Simba and was out. Yeah, he was like, peace. Anyways, let's not make this all about Home Improvement. (laughs) This entire (laughs) We're just going to cancel the episode. The episode today is pretty horrific, so maybe Home Improvement would be better. (laughs) Maybe we'll come back for a palate cleanser. (laughs) Yeah. Anyways, I love that show, and I'm really excited to see them. And there's going to – I think Jeffrey from The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air is going to be there as well. Oh, that's cool. The butler, Jeffrey. Yeah, that's cool. And I can't remember who else, but we'll see. Maybe there'll be some surprises for us. Usually there's, like, a bunch of wrestlers and stuff too, which I don't really care about, but it's kind of cool to see the (laughs) – and it was um, at it was at Niagara Falls Comic Con, right? The one before COVID, where I got to beat the Johnny Lawrence, Billy Zapka from Karate Kid, and he gave me a free cool. picture. So pretty excited. Sometimes you get surprised by these, you know. I I still have my picture of you and and Steve Sanders on my fridge. Yeah, I think that was from Niagara Falls, too, like five years ago. Oh, I love Kanoka. I'm so excited. Well, I'm happy that you're going this weekend. I hope it's good mm-hmm. weather and all that stuff. We might even go down and see the Horseshoe Falls, one of the seven wonders of the world. There right? you go. I think yeah, it is. Yeah. All right. Well, enough about me. Today, <laughs> we will be talking about a pretty scary guy. 
Awesome. And heavy, heavy trigger warnings, people. There's a lot of very disturbing stuff in this case. So if that makes you uncomfortable, a lot of a lot of sexual assault. So if that makes you uncomfortable, please not to listen. We will not hold it against you as always. Mm -hmm. But it is pretty scary. So I'm sorry, Rachel. Okay, not a problem. And also a drink of wine. (laughs) Right. Also, I apologize to my mom to some of the things that are going to be coming out of my mouth. I'm, oh, I mean, okay. You've heard a lot of rotten things come out of Erica's mouth, mom, but this is pretty bad. So we're going to try to get through it. And it's <laughs> Without kinda... further ado. Yeah. Shit. <laughs> we're going to start today's case on March 29th, 1988, when a young Chris Bryson, who was a 22-year-old husband and father from the east side of Kansas City, Missouri, was looking to make some extra cash. So he had recently settled down, but he was known to occasionally head down to the area of 10th and McGee Street to perform sex work to earn some extra scratch to help support his family. This area in Kansas City was well known as a place where male sex workers or as the local police, who weren't homophobic at all, would call them chicken hawks. Uh, would they would all they would all hang out and look for work. Yeah, the, that's what they refer to them a lot in all of the research. They refer to these men these male sex workers as chicken hawks was that's what the police called them so it just kind of doesn't sound that derogatory but i'm sure there was a homophobic yeah i can't quite figure out what it means but it's probably not nice yeah so this is 1988 people Mm -hmm. were they were dicks back then and still kind of are today yeah But they, so male sex workers uh, were known to hang around the area of 10th and McGee and look for work in the evenings. And like many of the men looking for work that night, Chris Bryson, he was not a homosexual. But when it came to making an easy buck, Chris was willing to do what it took in order to take care of his wife and child. While Chris was walking the streets that night, he was approached by a slightly older man driving a copper-colored Toyota Tercel. Many of the other men in the area knew this man, and some were even afraid of him, and many refused to accompany him. But Chris, on the other hand, had never seen this man before. He was slightly heavy set, wore glasses, had a mustache, and spoke with a slight lisp. He seemed harmless, and Chris thought that he could handle him. Mm-hmm. And after being invited back to a party at this man's house, Chris jumped into the car with the man and headed back to his place. The man, who we will call Bob, because that is his name, offered Chris a beer, and the two enjoyed some idle chit-chat as they made the drive across town to Bob's house. And Chris felt completely unthreatened by the man, who seemed more like a sexually curious businessman, this is what Chris told police later, Mm -hmm. than an actual John who was out looking for sex. Right. So Chris started to think that he might not even have to turn a trick that night, and the two might just go back to his place and party for a little bit. And then he would leave, at least getting some free drugs out of the deal and some beer. And after a short drive, the two men arrived in an unassuming house on Charlotte Street in the Hyde Park area of Kansas City, Missouri. So this is a fairly decent area of town. Again, Chris does not feel threatened at all. Right. Unsuspecting. Yes. Chris followed the man up the steps into his house. And the first thing Chris noticed once they were inside was the utter amount of shit, like literal poo, and clutter, dog poo, thankfully. Gross. So gross. Maybe not. Still disgusting. And clutter that filled his home. He could hear the dogs moving around the back of the house and saw that in the mess of newspaper, well, I already said this, and the other garbage uh, sprawled around the living room was actual dog shit just left everywhere, which I already said, but... It's gross enough that I could say it twice, so why not? (laughs) He observed that the house was also filled with strange antiquities and random junk collections. 
So there were like strange mm-hmm. books and pendants and paintings, shrunken heads and just weird shit like that all over the place. Strange. And just bizarre oddities. So just keep that in mind. Bizarre <laughs> oddities. Yeah, just keep that in mind. So Chris was just kind of starting to think that maybe something wasn't right here, but he went with the flow, lit up a cigarette, tried to make himself comfortable and just was kind of like going with it, just seeing what where things were leading. Eventually, Bob explained to Chris. It's yeah. just, it's amazing what people will do. He doesn't even think he's going to get paid at this point. He, he's just like, whatever, it's party. Like I'll party with yeah. dog shit. Not a big deal. Yeah. Strange. I would take one step into a, if I took one step into a house and there was literal dog shit everywhere... I'd be like, nope. I would be. Bye. I would try to be polite about it, but I'd be like, uh, see ya. I don't even think I'd be polite. I'd be like, to be quite honest, the odor in here is quite pungent and I can't handle it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I guess that's polite, actually. Shit. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I yeah. yeah. Um, so eventually Bob explains to Chris that one of his dogs had just had puppies and is running around on the ground floor, so they might be more comfortable upstairs in one of the spare rooms. And Chris agreed with the man and the two headed upstairs to the bedroom. As Chris and Bob approached the top of the staircase, Bob pulled out a two foot long metal pipe from where oh, I don't, don't know. Like that. I don't uh, like in, that. In both the books I read, it said that he pulled out a pipe. I was like, where was Bob keeping the pipe? Where was it? On the, like on the stairs? Did he have it in his pants? I was trying to figure <laughs> But needless to say, he did pull out the pipe and he strike Chris hard on the back of the head. Yeah. So Chris was partially unconscious and lying on the stairs. And the man pulled out a needle in a syringe and injected him with a drug, rendering Chris completely unconscious. I do not like that at all. Little did Chris know that while he was unco- uh, unconscious, Bob had taken him from room to room in his house, undressed him, and photographed him in various positions. Once in the bedroom, mm-hmm. the man positioned Chris on the bed, then tied his arms and legs to the bedpost and stuffed a washcloth into his mouth. Oh, shit. After securing Chris to the bed, Bob left the room to sleep for a few hours before coming back to where Chris Bryson was tied up and helpless at this point. Mm. He then had what is referred to as frictional sex with Chris while digitally penetrating him. I yeah. do not like the sounds of that at all. And we know that because he Bob took out a notebook and documented what he had just done by writing 530 to 6 tied on bar slash FRTFU finger, which stood for front fuck finger what the fuck why what's with these people documenting their crimes like for such easy evidence later such so strange a couple of hours later chris was again injected with more drugs this was also documented in bob's journal as three cubic centimeters of asapromazine an animal tranquilizer and then put a pillowcase over chris's head shit chris awoke the next morning gagged and terrified with very little memory about yeah, with very little memory about what had happened to him the night before, Bob came into the room and proceeded to aggressively poke Chris in the eye numerous times. The fuck? Who? who? <laughs> okay. Bob left the room briefly after this before returning this time with Q-tips, soaked in ammonia, oh or no. bleach. He dabbed the swabs into Chris's eyes. What? Ouch. Yikes. I'm gagging. Like, no. Yeah. Mm -mm. He then grabbed the iron bar and began beating Chris's hands, which were still tied above his head on uh, on the bed frame. 
And mm-hmm. after the beating on his hands was over, Chris started to feel immense pain on his lower body. He looked down and saw that the man had attached electrical clamps to him. One <gasps> clamp was attached to his testicles and the other was attached to his thigh. What? Sudden, suddenly electrical jolts were being sent through Chris's body. And all the while, his captor was snapping Polaroids of him. <gasps> that sick fuck. Once done with the electrocution, Chris was injected with even more drugs. One injection was more acepromazine, and the other was two cubic centimeters of drain cleaner, which was no. injected into Chris's vocal cords. At this point, Bob told Chris, this is just for my security, but if I catch you yelling, I'll put this straight into your vocal cords and you won't have a voice anymore. What? Jinkies. How the fuck do you think of this shit? I like, do not know. That's why I said this is very, this one was hard to research reading about I it. Mean, and, and you just went right in for it too. Like, well, waste no time. Let's do it. There's a lot more to cover. Oh um, God, okay. We're kind of starting at the end and we're going to work our way back around. Okay. You'll see. So throughout the day and night, Bob continued to monitor Chris's con- condition and he made notes in his journal each time that he went in to see Chris. Yeah. He documented that he injected Chris with five more cubic centimeters of acepromazine and that Chris had a slight react to this shot. (sighs) Bob made it until 3.30 p.m. the next day before returning to Chris. And Chris was still asleep but was showing signs of distress and was starting to spike a fever. Probably yeah, from all the abuse. Bob gave him a shot of penicillin to help fight off any infections that Chris might have had. How the hell Chris does he started... just have penicillin? How does he have any of these drugs? He does say later. We'll get there. Okay. Chris okay. started to wake up at this point, and the man tells him that he is a sex toy and proceeds to rape him. Oh, God. Over the next several days, Chris Bryson would be repeatedly raped, beaten, and tortured with Bob documenting everything in his notebook and snapping numerous Polaroids of the entire thing. Ugh, poor Chris. Bob told Chris, I've gotten this far with other people and they're dead now because of mistakes that they made. Oh, shit. Don't know if I believe that, Bob. Sorry. Eventually, Chris learned that if he complied with Bob, that he would gain his trust, and he was right. This would lead the man to retying Chris's restraints in front of him and set up above his head before leaving the house for a day of work. Hmm. So Chris had told him that, you know, my hands are really hurting and I'm not going to be any good to you if I, you know, I can't feel my hands. So can you, can I just have them in front of me? So wow. he had his hands, put them in front. Chris Quick thinking. Knew, yeah. And the other thing, though, that Bob didn't realize was that Chris had noticed that after one of the nights of torture had ended, Bob had left a pack of matches in the room within Chris's Mm. reach. So he grabbed the matches after he knew Bob was gone and he used them to burn through the ropes on his hands. Smart and lucky. Yeah. Once he was free from his restraints, he got up from the bed. He had been laying in for days and walked to the window. He was on the second floor, but that wouldn't stop Chris. He was completely naked. Yep. He was completely naked aside from a dog collar And he ended up leaping to freedom, breaking his foot in the process and running into the street. Please tell me that an officer didn't find him and return him back to his abuser. He did not. We've heard that before. No, he did not. So he actually first met a meter man who who helped him walk across the street to a neighbor's house. And upon seeing 
had naked and battered and bloody Chris. The the neighbor mm-hmm. obviously was worried and didn't want to open the door, but he did call 911 on his behalf. And on April 2nd, 1988, this would be the first time that anyone would ever hear of the actual horrid nightmare that was taking place for years at the house at 4315 Charlotte Street in Kansas City. Oh, shit. This was a house that belonged to an unassuming small business owner, also known as Bob Berdella. A lot of listeners will probably know this story. It is, like mm-hmm. I said, a horrific one. But yeah, that is who we're talking about today. Bob Berdella. Fucking Bob. So who is Bob Berdella? A fucking sadist dickbag? He is. Ding, ding, ding. What is she one? <laughs> that is exactly who he is. But who was he? So Bob was born on January 31st, 1949 in Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio, to parents Mary and Bob Berdella Sr. His early life was described as more or less normal and pretty uneventful, pretty standard childhood. And it was said that unlike most serial killers, he showed no outward signs of deviancy at all throughout his childhood. Hmm. So no fiddlesticks like Dahmer or trying to kill his you know, aunt in the middle of the night or surrounding, who was that, Bundy, put the knives all around his aunt's bed in the middle of the night. She woke up, she's like, the fuck? Yeah. (laughs) I'm gonna get (laughs) out of here real quick. (laughs) He was like three or four. Nothing like that. So Bob had a really uneventful childhood and was not a, a weird kid by any means. So he did have extremely poor eyesight, which required him to wear very thick glasses. And he suffered from a slight speech impediment resulting in a lisp. Of course, this also meant that he was bullied relentlessly by evil children, as they always Mm -hmm. are. Mm-hmm. However, despite teachers describing him as difficult to teach, he was extremely bright and a relatively good student. Hmm. Now, Bob Berdella Sr. was a real sports dad. Millie really was into his kids playing sports, but Bob was not into sports at all. And oh, this was partially because he had very high blood pressure and was on like a lot of medication for it. So he just didn't, and he just didn't like sports. He just wasn't a sports Fair kid. Enough. It's not for everybody. Yeah, right. This was a source of disappointment for his father though. And it, that really caused his father to favor his younger brother, Daniel, who was into the sportsy stuff. It was also said in some sources that Robert Sr. or Bob Sr. could be both emotionally and physically abusive to his kids. But I couldn't confirm it was different in other sources, but it was the 50s and 60s. So if they got a belt once in a while, that wouldn't be shocking. Right. Because those were different times, as we like to say. They sure were. So Robert wasn't known to have much of a social life at all in his younger years. And he's described as having was as having extremely low self-esteem. Uh, but this would all change when he entered high school. And uh, it turned out Bob had above average intelligence. And this caused him to become overconfident and very cocky. Oh, though I hate that kind of. Yeah. When they just act like they know more than you. Oh, there was a couple of them in our high school. There was one guy in particular. I won't say his name. And I think I know exactly who you're talking about. Starts with the letter B. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That was an ass. But he especially was, he especially acted this way towards women, something that would carry on throughout the rest of his life. He had realized early on in high school that he was gay and he didn't openly start living a gay lifestyle or come out officially but he was comfortable with his sexuality. So kind of like Dahmer, right? Knew he was gay. Didn't tell anyone, but didn't fight it either. Just kind of went with it. And this was in the sixties. So a lot of most people wouldn't be coming out at that point in history. So 
For sure. He also realized at this point that he was very skilled in the arts, and he would end up being only one of three students chosen to participate in a very exclusive independent study program through his high school. Mm. On Christmas Day in 1965, the Berdella family's world would be rocked when Robert Sr. died suddenly of a heart attack at the age of 39. Whoa, super young. Yeah. His mother remarried fairly quickly after the death of his father, and this was something that Bob resented the rest of his life, like resented her for for the rest of his life, and he refused to ever accept his new stepfather. Oh, shitty. And another thing that happened in Bob's life was when he was about 16, he started a part-time job working as a line cook at a local restaurant. And according to him, during one of his shifts, he was sexually assaulted by another male employee. And he would say that this was his first homosexual experience. And because these kind of things just weren't really discussed at the time, he never reported the assault or told anyone that it had happened to him. That sucks. Be lonely. Mm -hmm. And one last thing that happened to Bob in his teenage years that that may have influenced him later in life was there was this little movie that came out and it was called The Collector. I have never heard of this movie, but apparently it's quite... um, was quite popular Hmm. so it's basically about a guy who collected butterflies and became obsessed with a female co-worker abducts her and holds her prisoner convinced that she will eventually fall in love with him and then she dies so he just keeps her oh and she doesn't fall in love with him spoiler alert i don't know it sounds like an okay movie maybe something i would watch but i mean yeah i kind of want to watch it but also where would you find it I also um, have heard of other serial killers really liking this movie. So it's Hmm. like a catcher in the rye situation. Yeah, we should check it out. Yeah. This movie would start to fuel Burdella's own sick fantasies of taking people prisoner later on in life for his own personal pleasure. However, Hmm. he would take things to a whole other level of despicable, disgusting violence, torture, and murder, which we will get to later. (laughs) Da-da-da-da. Yeah, this is horrible. Hmm. After graduating, and if you guys hear me laugh or anything during this, it's not because I think it's funny. It's because I'm very uncomfortable. It's like a nervous so, laugh. Yeah. After graduating from high school, Berdella would enroll in Kansas City in the Kansas City Art Institute. And this is when Berdella would start exploring his fantasies via the torture of animals. Mm-hmm. He would do experiments on a chicken and a dog where he injected them with a variety of drugs just to see what would happen to them and to gauge their reactions. That is fucked. Neat. (laughs) I don't Mm. understand. He would also do some very bizarre, I guess, like student art projects or little exhibits while enrolled at the Art Institute. One of them I read included boiling a duck alive. Okay. You can't just torture animals and call it art. Which he later took home and then he ate the duck. So at least he didn't he didn't die in vain. Although I wish he didn't die he was at just all. Just cooking it, I yeah. Guess. But alive? It's not a lobster, Bob. Like, oh right, I forgot that part. Yeah, you fucking right. dick. Now this one is very very scary. So he set up a maze where at the beginning of the maze he would hand um, the people going through the maze a chicken. Or like a chick, like a baby chick to hold. Oh, God. And they would go through the maze. And at the end of the maze, there was a film plane of a chick, like, eating. Mm -hmm. Okay? So they'd get to the end of the maze. They're holding their chick. And there's a film of the chick eating. And then in the film, somebody would come out and shoot the chick in the head and kill it in the movie. And what would happen is a lot of people who were still holding the chick would be so startled 
Oh, come on. They didn't. That they would squeeze it and it would die. <gasps> and Fuck. this was what they consider art. Like, a... how do you want that? Oh, my God. I don't. And he didn't get kicked out of school for that one. However, How did he, he not would- get beat up? Like, if I, I walked know. out of there and I had just squished a chick on accident, I'm beating your ass. Like, yeah. that would not that would not be what what got him out of art school. He did a very bizarre art project while enrolled another bizarre one. There's many bizarre things in this, but this is another one, and it had something to do with like a dead dog. And I'm not really sure what that art project was, but after I that, I don't want to know. He came so dangerously close, like he knew he was getting expelled, so he dropped out of the art institute okay. and started exploring other options. Which no was, one thought to like call the police or anything. Like, hey, this guy's a little weird. A little weird? No, they did not. They did not. Oh. That probably would have been smart, but <laughs> and, mean... and you know what? In interviews after all of this, Bob says that too. <laughs> that probably would have been <laughs> smart if they had done that. But they didn't, so I blame them. Yeah, he's yeah, a dick. He would actually end up, after dropping out of art school, becoming uh, a bit of an accomplished chef and would split Ew. his time. Yeah. I can't yeah. imagine the creations he was making. Yeah. He would end up splitting his time between working in the restaurant scene and volunteering in several programs around Kansas City designed to support at-risk youth and help them turn their lives around. Weird, right? What a strange... Yeah. Bob is a very strange guy. At the age of 20, Bob would use some of the money he saved while working as a chef to purchase a three-story home on Charlotte Street. I wish. Can you imagine? His torture chamber. His torture chamber. But can you imagine being able to, at 20, to afford a three-story house? Victorian style house. I can't even imagine buying one at 60. So I I can't unless somebody wills a house to me. Well, even at that, I probably still can't afford it. So it's free and I can't afford it. So the bills that go with it. Oh, God, we're doomed. Uh, okay, so yeah, so he bought the house on Charlotte Street, and he was described by neighbors as friendly, but he wouldn't socialize with anyone in the neighborhood. He would, however, become a very active member in the neighborhood watch program. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, didn't want any crime around his house. No, no. By his early early 20s, Bob was now living as an openly gay man and preferred the company of the younger boys, mm-hmm. usually teens, that hung oh, around no. the downtown streets of Kansas City. No, no, no. These boys would often be seen coming and going from the Charlotte Street house, and Bob would say that he was helping them and that there was no sex involved at this time. He said he was just helping them get them off the street, try to get them clean, get their head on their shoulders, maybe help find them a job, help them out financially. With nothing expected in return. Yeah. I almost want to give him the benefit of the doubt with this one, but I just can't quite believe it. (laughs) I don't believe it. But a lot of this is coming from Bob's confessions from later. So, Mm. yeah. Take what you will. Take it with a grain of salt. So, Bob would eventually give up being a chef to run his small curiosity shop called Bob's Bazaar bizarre oh there's where the bizarre things come from the shop specialized in oddities from all over the world like shrunken heads human skulls primitive art jewelry strange artifacts etc sounds so that's what he was decorating his house with yes and this little shop started out as like just like a little like pop-up shop at the local flea market and then he ended up buying like an actual or renting out like an actual 
little store, I guess, at the same flea market. Hmm. Bob would have a brief but passionate love affair with a Vietnam veteran. And when that relationship ended abruptly, Bob once again took to the street seeking comfort in the company of young male sex workers. Bob would often offer these young men a room in his house, and it wasn't unusual for all of the bedrooms to be full of boarders in need of a roof over their head. Bob never did things strictly out of the kindness of his heart, though. No, of course not. And I can't argue that he did help in turning some of these kids' lives around. Some of them have said that after the fact. Oh, really? And he got them off the street, or in some cases, even off drugs. His assistance didn't come without a price, and many of these boys were exchanging sex for the help that Bob offered them. In 1984, Bob started spending a lot of his time with a 19-year-old sex worker called Jerry Howell, who he had actually known since Jerry was only 14 years old. So Jerry's father, Paul, actually owned the shop right next door to Bob's at the flea market. And from a young age, Jerry was fascinated by Bob and the fact that there was this older man who owned the bizarre shop next to his father's, and he was openly gay as Jerry himself was questioning his own sexuality at the time. When Bob had found out that Jerry had started doing sex work, he actually was somewhat upset with Jerry and said he like legitimately wanted to help him. Mm-hmm. He would loan Jerry money, allow him to stay at his place, and even eventually told Jerry's father that his son, what his son was up to because he was concerned for his safety. Interesting. Yeah. Jerry's father, he wasn't a fan of Bob as he had heard about Bordella and how he treated young men. And he sometimes felt like Bob was taking advantage of these young guys. So mm-hmm. like, and dressing Which it up. he was, as I'm sure. Nice. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and like, like I said, dressing it up as being something good that he was doing mm-hmm. for the community. But Jerry and Bob wouldn't be stopped, and a strong bond would form between the two of them. On July 4th, 1984, Berdella said that he picked Jerry up, like Jerry had called him, and he wanted to go, Jerry had wanted to go to a dance contest later that night, but also wanted to party beforehand. So the two went back to Berdella's house, where they did drugs together, and they drank. Well, Bob was a little pissed off because Jerry hadn't paid back some of the things, some of the money that he owed Bob, so he naturally drugged Jerry and decided that this kid was going to pay up one way or another. Ugh, fucking Bob. With Jerry now passed out, Berdella injected Jerry with another 1cc of a tranquilizer. Jerry was now under Bob's complete control. Mm. So Bob raped him multiple times that night and documented every step of the process with Polaroids and written notes. Uh, yeah, like I said before, he would use different abbreviations for the heinous acts that he committed against Jerry Howell, including which drugs he used and the sex acts he performed on his unconscious body. He's disgusting. He is very gross. Eventually, a bounding gag, Jerry Howell started to vomit and was starting to have difficulty breathing. And even in the state, Berdella con- continued to assault Jerry, noting in his diary, 1145 BF, which you can probably guess by that what that means yeah i think so yeah and then again at 12 30 bf mm. this would continue throughout the night Brudella would write even more notes including jerry's reactions to the different assaults his physical appearance and the different amounts of drugs he was injecting into him between each of the assaults Brudella would lay beside jerry either resting or sleeping before repeating the torture when Jerry began to stir the next morning, Bob injected him with more drugs to keep the young man in a coma-like state and under his complete control. At 8.40 the next morning, Berdella wrote in his diary the letters CF, and when asked later what that meant, Bob calmly explained, 
I believe that stood for carrot. Oh, come on. I am so glad that he is drugged and can't feel anything because this is fucked. At around 10 p.m. on July 5th, Jerry Howell would die from choking on his own vomit. Mm. The entire horrendous ordeal was over in just a mere 24 hours after it started. He Bob moved okay. Jerry's body to the basement, suspended him from the ceiling upside down, and drained the blood from his body. What? He so he cut into the major arteries. So yeah, that, yeah. But what the fuck? Now Bob would first start trying to use his own chef's knives to dismember Jerry, but when that wasn't working, he switched to a gas-powered chainsaw to finish the job. He took pictures of the entire process and was pleasuring himself throughout the entire time. Oh my god. Uh, he he put the dismembered body parts into garbage bags and walked them to the curb the following Monday to be picked up by the local garbage men unsuspecting of what like, they were taking to the landfill. So nonchalant of like whatever. Nobody's going to open yeah. these bags. It's fine. And he was right. Yeah, For Dallas Berdella decided that the best way to recapture his excitement was to make as many notes as he possibly could and match them to each of the pictures, which he would then use to masturbate with. I do not like that at all. Now, it would be 10 months before Bob's desire to kill would come again. At first, he was, like, horribly afraid of being caught. But as time went on, the police never came knocking, and he started to feel like he was in the clear. Ugh. In the spring of 1985, Berdella invited a man named Robert Sheldon back to his house to party. He decided that Robert was going to be his next victim. He injected Robert with drugs several times, uh, but the man wasn't passing out, and Berdella suddenly had a change of heart and decided just to go to bed. No way. Yeah. When he awoke the next morning, Robert was sick on the bathroom floor, complaining about stiffness in all of his joints. So Bradella took Robert to the hospital to make sure he was okay, and he was giving a, given a prescription for penicillin and sent home. Mm-mm. The two partied again together that night, and that's when he changed his mind again and made the final decision that he would keep him. Like, keep him. <laughs> you know. Like, you're never leaving. You are mine now. Yeah. So he gave Robert a heavy dose of tranquilizers, including crushed Valium. Mm-hmm. When he passed out, Bradella stripped Robert of his clothes, tied his legs together, and carried him to a bedroom on the third floor of his house. And starting at 11.15 that night, he would rape Robert repeatedly using various objects, including the carrot and a cucumber, to mm. sodomize his victim. He once again documented the entire process with Polaroids and handwritten notes. Once he wasn't able to rape the man anymore, like he just couldn't continue i don't even yeah no that don't even want to know no Mm -mm. um he decided to experiment on robert by seeing what would happen if he were to put liquid drano into his eyes no please don't jesus his his hope with this was to permanently blind him making it even more difficult for him to escape he would also use a syringe to inject drain cleaner into robert's ear causing the Uh, poor guy to scream out in pain Uh Uh-huh. He documented this in his journal by writing D-C-L-E, which stood for Drain Cleaner, Left Eye, Left Ear. Oh, God damn it. The more Robert screamed, the more excited Berdella got, and he continued to inflict even more pain onto his victim by crushing his hands with pliers and a hammer. Oh, no, no, no. When Robert's screams started to make him nervous, he injected him with more tranquilizers to knock him out and keep him quiet. 
-hmm. For days, the rape and torture of Robert Sheldon would continue, with Bob even going as far as branding him with a scalding hot hanger that he fashioned to make the word hot into his left shoulder. He also tried to use silicone caulking to try and fill Robert's ears, rendering him deaf, but it wouldn't seal, like it wouldn't harden and adhere to his ear, like his inner ear, which disappointed Bob. Hmm. Well, the heat from your body, right, wouldn't allow it to seal. Like it's the caulking that you put in your bathroom, right? Yeah. So it just fell out. Yeah. Um, he, He would experiment with something else he called bizarre acupuncture, which included jabbing the man with needles in various, very uncomfortable places in his body just to see his reaction. During this torture of Robert Sheldon, Berdella discovered that he was just as much aroused by the abuse of his victims as he was by actually raping them. And he actually preferred to let the effects of the drugs wear off a bit so that the victims would be more emotionally aware of what was happening to them. No, 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 no. Because why not, Bob? Fucking Bob Bordella. Oh, my God. Um, I mean, you warned us this was going to be disgusting, and you have delivered thus far. I'm going to try not to go into too much detail, but the things that he did are so depraved. I just, people need to know what a monster that Bob Bordella is. He is fucking disgusting. Another new form of torture that he would try was electrocution. So we did hear this with Chris Bryson at the beginning. He would use a 7,000 volt electrical transformer and he would attach that to different areas of Robert Sheldon's body. And one of these electrocution sessions, Burdella would take a total of 17 photos and made detailed notes in his journal about the entire five minute ordeal, which doesn't sound like a long time, five minutes. Uh, but when you have when you have seven thousand volts of electricity passing through your body, it probably yeah. felt like that's a, a long never time. ending nightmare. Yeah. On April fifteenth, Perdella would decide <gasps> that it was time. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you weren't alive yet, though. For this, this was nineteen eighty five. So on April fifteenth, Perdella would decide that it was time to kill Robert Sheldon when he realized that some handy men were coming to do work around the house. So after using a plastic bag to suffocate Robert, he would dismember his body in the bathtub, this time making the decision to keep his head, which he buried in the backyard. And the handymen that were coming were coming to clean the backyard and do some work out there right on top of where he buried Robert Sheldon's head. But he he enjoyed that, right? He liked that. Mm -hmm. Two months later, on June 22nd, Bob took his next victim. His name was Mark Mm -hmm. Wallace, and Berdella had actually hired him to help tidy up his backyard again, right where Robert Sheldon's uh, head was buried. Mm-hmm. money was tight for mark at the time and he needed the work so it was a good as deal as any mm-hmm. unfortunately after a day of work mark would sneak into Bordella's garden shed to sleep for the night because he was homeless to avoid an oncoming thunderstorm he was discovered by Bordella when his dogs started barking and i should note that bob had little chow chow dogs like he bred them okay they're very cute little doggies and i'm sad for them for having to live in his yeah house of course bob invited the young man into his house for some beers and the two got talking Bradella suggested to mark that to help him chill out and relax he could inject him with a tranquilizer which oh, mark accepted. he injected him with a half cc of chlorpromazine and once mark passed out from that he gave him a second injection of ketamine which resulted in mark falling completely unconscious good i'm gonna say thank goodness he's unconscious for what i can imagine is coming he would engage in his usual routine of nonstop rape and torture of his victim, meticulously documenting each horrific act he perpetrated on the young man's body. Mm. 
And he would again find new and even more terrible acts of torture to inflict on Mark Mark Wallace, noting in his journal that he thoroughly enjoyed the look of pain and confusion he saw in his victim's eyes when he would assault them. It would really suck to be the, like the investigator and the lawyers that have to read these notebooks afterwards because so much counseling, so much counseling. Oh my God. You can't even, how do you, you don't recover from that shit, man. No, you don't. I might not even recover from this. So (laughs) I can't imagine reading it. When he found a particularly painful spot on his victim, he would write it down in his journal to remember for later. One of his newest forms of torture was to fill a large syringe with dish soap and water to perform enemas. What? I mean, I feel like that's the safest thing that he's done. But still, it's so in- invasive. Right? Oh, for it's sure. Another I'm way not... to. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not a chemical, I guess, is what I'm yeah. like. It's... Yeah. Yeah. At least it's not Drano. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. Eventually, Bob noticed that the torture methods he was using was no longer having an effect on Mark. And when he checked his pulse, he realized he was dead. Oh, shit. He dismembered Mark Wallace by placing his and then placed his remains in garbage bags and again put them on the curb for the garbage man to collect. Berdella was disappointed that his latest quote unquote plaything had only lasted a mere 24 hours and he learned that if he wanted to keep his living sex dolls around for extended period of time he would have to learn how to pace himself so his goal was the same as jeffrey dahmer uh was to have a sex slave and killing his victims was never his intent mm-hmm. he enjoyed being in complete control of his victims and enjoyed knowing that they were helpless to stop whatever evil act he would inflict upon them so it almost makes me wonder if jeffrey dahmer was inspired by bob Berdella. Ew. Because it's a very similar, yeah. Mm -hmm. At this point, word was starting to get around that Berdella was someone for male sex workers to avoid, especially since the disappearance of Robert Sheldon and Jerry Howell, who were both known like lovers. I don't, I don't like saying that because he murdered them, but Mm -hmm. at the time they were known to be two men that would go to Berdella's house and had a relationship with him. Mm-hmm. And they were both seen with him shortly before they went missing. So Jerry Howell's father, Paul, he had been asking questions of other young men who hung around the downtown area and had convinced a friend of his who worked for the police force that his son was more than just a runaway kid. Mm-hmm. He had also mentioned Berdella's name to the police and let them know about his reputation for taking advantage of vulnerable young men. Berdella was eventually brought in for questioning, showing up with his lawyer, but with little evidence to go on, Berdella was ultimately sent home. Little evidence to go on. Christ almighty. Well, at this point, right, they have they have nothing and it's Well, they have no probable cause to probably search his house. And the fact that they are dealing with um gay men is Mm -hmm. probably again, like I said, we said at the beginning, really playing a large factor in this. So Mm -hmm. into them not him them not looking deeper into Bob Berdella. Um, they did open a file into Verdella as well as Jerry Howell, but the detectives had really no interest in looking further into a case of homosexual. Okay, I just said that. <laughs> so Verdella would be questioned by police again later in the winter of 1985. And this time it was about a drug sale to two men named Gene Shaw and Walter Ferris. He had sold them a bottle of chlorpromazine, which they later traded back to him for marijuana. When the police showed up at his shop to question him about the drug sale, he knew that the men had ratted him out. September 26, 1986, Walter Ferris would call Berdella to party at a local gay bar before heading back to his house to do drugs. 
This would present a perfect opportunity for Bob to not only take his next victim captive, but also get revenge on Walter for turning him in. Mm-hmm. So Bob, again, drugged Walter with tranquilizers by crushing up the drugs this time and putting them in a bowl of chili. And oh. once, yeah, once he was sleeping soundly, he would inject him with more drugs and the cycle of rape and torture would begin again. He would rape him for hours before hooking up two metal cooking spatulas to his transformer and electrocuting Walter. So what it said in the oh, book is this allowed him to easily, instead of having clamps, yeah, he clamping, he could move these metal spatulas easier around the body. That is fucked. Yikes. Bob noted that even when the gag wasn't completely tight in Walter's mouth, he was unable to scream or yell very loudly. And this was because Walter had been in a bad car accident years earlier and his vocal cords had been damaged, making his voice very uh, like raspy and quiet. Mm-hmm. So he couldn't even scream for help, even if he wanted to. Oh, my God. Poor Walter. Now, after raping Walter all night long, Berdella noticed that he was starting to spike a fever, so he injected him with penicillin to ensure that um, he wouldn't die on him too quickly. But unfortunately, it wouldn't be long until Walter would lose his life from all of the abuse and become 86, as Berdella would note in his journal, which is a common term in the restaurant industry for when a menu item is no longer available. So, in other words, he had died. That's gross, though, to be referring to him as a menu item. That's, oh, God, man, it's so fucked. And once again, uh, just like everyone before him, Walter was dismembered and placed on the curb. Todd Stoops was Bob's next victim. The two had met back in 1984, and Todd had actually lived in Berdala's home for some time. And at the time, Todd was married, and he and his wife were both addicts who had very little money and had fallen on hard times. So Verdella claimed that he had tried to get the couple back on their feet. Two years later in 1986, Verdella spotted Todd again at the intersection of 10th and McGee in Kansas City. Verdella picked the man up and the two got talking about old times. Todd had been in prison for a time and had lost contact with his wife. He was in bad shape the night that he met Verdella and agreed to accompany him back to his home with the promise of food and drugs. Bob had always been attracted to Todd, so he was ecstatic that he had essentially fallen right into his trap. He gave Todd a peanut butter sandwich laced with drugs, and in no time, the young man was passed out and vulnerable to Bob's torture and abuse. Berdella made a note in the journal that night that he was pleased that he was able to assault Todd using his fist. No, come on. An assault that lasted several minutes and resulting in the man bleeding profusely. Yeah, fuck. He, uh, Bob whipped Todd with an electrical cord and each time the young man would scream in agony that annoyed Bob. So he came up with another fucked up and horrific plan that he thought for sure would stop the screaming forever. Uh -uh. And this is when he came up with the bright idea to inject drain cleaner directly into Todd's voice box in hopes that it would render him unable to scream. How does he even know where the voice box is? Like, like, like you're not a doctor. Yeah. Yeah. The next day Todd regained consciousness and Bob offered him something to eat, but after the torture from the night before, he was unable to keep anything down. Yeah. He developed a fever, so Bob gave him antibiotics to help fight off the, any infections he might have. And as the day went on, Todd would cry and beg Bob to stop what he was doing. And Bob simply responded to Todd by telling him, you're never leaving here, Todd, and these are the facts of life. Oh. <laughs> Todd Stoops would be held by Berdella for 13 days, being repeatedly raped and tortured before eventually succumbing to his various injuries and dying on July 1st, 1986. Whoa, that's a long time. Yeah. 
So Berdella would keep his body for six days before placing the body parts back on the curb again. Bob went through a bit of a cooling down period after this because it wouldn't be until 11 months later that he would claim another victim. And this was in June of 1987. Berdella got a call from a young homeless man he had known previously named Larry Pearson. Larry had been arrested and needed someone to bail him out of jail. Bob agreed to bail him out on the very strange condition that he accompanied him to visit his mother in Ohio. This was an odd request as the two men had known each other, but they weren't exactly best friends or had even engaged in any kind of sexual relationship or any of that in all the years they had known one another. But with very few options of who to call, Larry agreed and Bob paid the $150 bail and the two spent the next week together with Berdella's family in Ohio. Wow, that's so strange. And awkward. Like Very awkward. I want to know how Bob introduced Larry to his mother. Like, who's and, Larry? Like, is this just and my And the mom Larry? is like, why are you bringing me these people? Yeah. Like, yeah, I don't understand it. But I guess in, if you're in Larry Pearson's situation, you do what you got to do. I guess so. so. Pearson would continue to stay with Bordella for the next two weeks, sleeping on his couch. And Bordella was angry that Larry didn't go out and get a job or help out around the house or contribute anything. So after he took him out to see the movie Creep Show 2, Bob hmm. made the decision to take Larry prisoner. What a strange easy. like so was was Larry kind of like his boyfriend, his roommate, his friend? He was like staying there. You know how before we talked about how Bob would let people stay at his house. Yeah. It was almost like a boarding house and the men would do things around. So I think that's what he initially I mean, I believe that he took Larry to take Larry, let yeah. him stay there, get his, let his guard get, go down. And he had that planned all along. But in but before, it's, yeah. It's the meeting, his mom part. That's like, the hell? Yeah, I don't understand. So the next night, Bob drugged Larry and his cycle of abuse began. Now, Larry mm. was bigger than his other victims. So instead of carrying him up to the bedroom, he dragged him to the basement and he tied him up down there. Mm -hmm. He explained to Larry that he wasn't allowed to speak unless he had permission and that he was never allowed to refuse sex. And if he didn't follow the rules, he would be punished severely. And after three weeks, Perdella decided that Larry had complied to his demands and that he could move Larry to the third floor bedroom. Wow. So like I said, Larry was more compliant at this point and he learned how to keep Bob happy so as to not be abused as harshly like and don't get me wrong i'm sure whatever larry endured even if it wasn't as harsh was probably a nightmare so uh -huh. yeah um now Berdella warned larry that if he behaved he could remain in the bedroom and have a tv to watch but if he slipped up it was back to the basement at this point um oral sex became a daily morning ritual between Berdella and larry and after nearly two months of enduring the worst kind of hell you could possibly imagine larry had had enough and during two one of the months, yeah, Larry was one of the longer. Jesus Christ, yeah. two months. Yeah. So Larry had had enough of his abuse. And during one of their daily oral sex sessions, Larry bit down on Berdella's mm -hmm. teeny peen. Nearly 100% would have done the exact same. Well, and I'm just wondering if Larry's at the point where he's like, just no matter what, this is ending in death. So I'm going to get that is done and over with. Or I'm yeah. going to get something in here, right? I mean, it hurts oh, you. Oh, yeah. So, Berdella was, of course, very pissed. And he beat Larry to the point of unconsciousness before heading to the hospital to get his winky repaired. Oh, fucker. I How do you explain that? Um, How do you explain it? What do you say? 
case of lockjaw. Once the process of sewing Mr. Happy back together was completed, Bob told the nurses that he needed to go home to check on his dog, who had just had puppies. Mm. Now, the hospital didn't want him to leave, but after pleading with them, he was able to convince them to let them go, to let him go under the condition that he came right back. So Bob hopped in a cab and hurried home to feed the dogs, a.k.a. Mm-hmm. murder Larry Pearson. Mm-hmm. It took Bob roughly 10 minutes to complete this job, and all while the cab he had taken from the hospital waited in the driveway. Stop it. Mm-hmm. This guy has no shame. He would end up creaking the AC as high as he could and leaving Larry's body in the home for three days while he recovered in the hospital. When Bob returned home, he dismembered Larry. And he said that he didn't need to drain the blood because it had, like, congealed. It was almost like a jelly-like mm-hmm. state at that point. Um, and he would also keep Larry's head as a trophy. And what he ended up doing was digging up Robin, Robert Sheldon's head, and he replaced it with Larry's in the backyard. Oh, my God. And then he took Robert Sheldon's skull and removed all the teeth in the vertebrae, put those in an envelope and a baggie, and put the shell on a, sh- on a shelf in his closet. As like another trophy. Bob wouldn't take another victim until March of 1988. And this would thankfully be the one that took this brutal, vicious monster down. Chris Bryson had been taken prisoner, but was thankfully able to escape and alert a neighbor of what had happened to him. Thank fuck. So when when the police arrived on April 2nd, 1988, to the neighbor of Bob Berdella, to the house where Chris Bryson was, they had no idea what, what to expect. Chris explained to them the torture and abuse he had experienced at the hands of Bob Berdella, and he told the officer that he had been photographed and that he had even seen photos of other men that he believed have also been raped and tortured by Berdella. One of them mm-hmm. he claimed was a photo of a man that he believed was dead in the picture hanging oh, from man. the ceiling. Oh, God. Now, we've said this twice. I'll say it three times. There was a very thick potent stench of homophobia lurking in the air all around this. Uh-huh. And the officer wasn't sure if he should believe this man who was naked, bruised, probably had signs of electrocution all over his body. Bleeding. No, his eyes were like... Oh, yeah, his eyes, his voice chemically was all, burned. His voice was raspy from having the drain cleaner injected into his throat. But still... Should I believe him? Or is this a... I mean... Is, is this a gay sex act gone wrong? Maybe I, I, he's telling the truth. Maybe yeah. he's a scorned lover. Like, what the fuck? I know. So, and they always say, you know, we see this all the time in the gay community. Well, then you're seeing nope. a lot of abuse in the gay community. Maybe you should look into that and not just be yeah. like, it's a gay thing. Absolutely. I, I'm, oh my God. I, I'm sorry. Like, if I, if... Chris Bryson had been a woman and said the man across the street did all these things to me. They probably, I mean, unless she was a sex worker, in which case, again, yeah. they don't give a fuck. They so. wouldn't. Yeah. This happens all the time in the sex industry. Yeah. No, it shouldn't. The fuck. Yeah. It's very sad. And it's sad because I think it still fucking happens now, which makes me even 100%. more angry. But that's a different story for a different day. It's, it's a different rant. But- Nevertheless, regardless of what he believed, he did call for backup. And within a few minutes, two more detectives arrived and the Crimes Against Persons Division was notified. Uh, The homicide squad was also called in in the case that Chris was telling the truth about the apparently dead man he had seen in Polaroids. So at least they called the people in, even if they didn't quite believe them. So Mm -hmm. Chris Chris directed the officers uh, to the house that he escaped from and they proceeded to knock on Berdella's door but got no answer. 
and an ambulance arrived in the meantime and took Chris to the hospital. Finally, thank well, you. Well, he's not home. Case closed. They did wait. So at around noon, Bob returned home to find the police officers on his property. He asked them what was going on. The police told him that he was under arrest for suspected sexual assault and asked if they would allow if he would allow them to search his house. And he asked the officers questions to try and pry out what info, info they already had. And they refused to tell him anything. So he refused mm-hmm. to let them in. Now, he was asking really weird questions like, where is he? Where's the guy? Like, And they hadn't really told him anything. So they're like, what guy? Me? Yeah. 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 And then finally, they said, he's already talking. They said, we don't need to tell you his name and we don't need to tell you where he is, but he's already talking and we know you're up to something. Mm-hmm. Um, so by 2 p.m. that day, police officers were, were able to obtain a warrant to search Berdella's home and they ended up finding piles upon piles upon piles of evidence during a search that took days to complete. Okay. And like they were going through everything and you can imagine this house is disgusting. They had to wear hazmat suits. They, you know... Um. They said that they could not take a step through this house without stepping in dog shit. They're just, there was just so much everywhere. And the dogs were taken out by um, the Humane Society. Animal control. Animal control did come and take the dogs. And they never said what happened to the doggos, but I hope they found a good home and had a good life. I'm sure they did. So, yeah, with every new piece of evidence they found, the police were more and more horrified. They found hundreds of photos, all depicting men in different states of torture. And on the top of the first box of photos they found were the pictures of Chris Bryson. So basically, mm-hmm. they confirmed much. Oh, maybe you're story. telling the truth. Yeah, <laughs> I um, believe you now. Yeah, they saw the transformer hooked up close to the bed in the third floor bedroom. Mm-hmm. On the nightstand next to that bed were syringes and various types of drugs. They found two skulls in a closet along with two envelopes, one containing pieces of vertebrae and the other with um, teeth inside. Later, mm. to they later tested these things, and it was one of the skulls was Robert Sheldon's skull. Mm-hmm. The other one was like an artifact from his shop. It wasn't an actual, it wasn't, like it wasn't, a, it wasn't a victim skull. Yeah, it, it may have been real, but it was like an artifact, not a recent. Right. They all. When they found books relating to the occult, because this is the 80s, they started to think that Berdella was involved in some sort of satanic cult and that he, whatever he was doing was some sort of devil worship. I mean, it sounds very much like it. But that didn't really pan out because Berdella was just disgusting. Mm-hmm. Not a devil worshiper. Not sacrificing just a sick for Satan. When they brought in Luminol to test for blood, Mm-mm. can you guess what happened? That place lit up like a goddamn Christmas tree. There was blood literally everywhere, including on the ceiling, and they were able to identify what looked like footprints on the basement ceiling. So unless somebody was able to walk upside down mm-hmm. and defy these, like, spider pig, Homer's holding them up. <laughs> so unless that was happening, then perhaps what Chris Bryson had told them about the Polaroid of the dead man hanging from mm-hmm. the floorboards what or the rafters was possibly what they were seeing there in the bloody footprints um there was also clear remnants of blood and human tissue on the inside uh workings of the chainsaw bob had used to dismember the victims Mm. in one bag they searched through they ended up finding walter ferris's wallet with his id still inside 
Sprawled out all over the dining room table were news clippings relating to the disappearance of Jerry Howell. And hidden between the mattresses in one of the bedrooms, the police found Bob's journal with all of his notes relating to the torture methods used on his victims. Oh, God. With testing pending on the two skulls found in Berdella's home, the police were stumped on what they could actually charge him with. So they were able to get a positive ID from photos that they showed Chris Bryson while he was in the hospital. So armed with that, they were able to obtain an arrest warrant on the grounds of sodomy, first degree assault, and felonious restraint. Mm, Not even attempted murder? No, not yet. Not yet. Don't worry, he gets his comeuffance. So the... The police were sure that they had a serial killer on their hands. And the one thing that they were really worried about was that this was going to be like John Wayne Gacy. Cause that had just, that was still fresh in everybody's mind. Mm-hmm. So they thought if they were, they started pulling up floorboards or digging in the backyard, they were going to find like hundreds of victims. Mm-hmm. Um, but they didn't have any bodies and they needed evidence to prove what they believed was a serial killer in their midst. So right? the skull, so, I guess they're still waiting for the testing, but a skull is a pretty clear yeah. Evidence. Yeah, but they because he had that shop, right? And they had already mm. searched his. They did go and search the shop as well, but all of those artifacts in there were all either fake or artifacts, right? And he had that decoy. Yeah, yeah. So they did bring in a back uh, a backhoe to dig up the backyard, and it would only take take a few minutes of digging before they came across the head of Larry Pearson. Hmm. So finally, they had something concrete, but they still needed more. They wanted to be sure that Bob would never see the light of day again or get off on some kind of technicality. Oh, my God. Could you imagine? Now, Bob had been sitting at the police station for a while, and he still wasn't talking to investigators. So they had all these Polaroids, and in them they could see, like, a partially naked man who was either taking the pictures or participating in this torture and abuse of these men. And so what they did was they started thinking if maybe they could just humiliate Bob a little bit, that maybe he would give them some information. So they forced him to strip naked, and they took pictures of him in the same position as the faceless man from the photos. Hmm. And eventually, after comparing the images, they were able to confidently say that that was Bob in almost all of them. No shit. So it worked. Yeah. The police also realized that after cross-referencing Berdella's name that he was already questioned in relation to the disappearance of both Jerry Howell and Walter Ferris, but it slipped under the radar in both cases. Mm -hmm. With all of the evidence piling up, the police were able to determine that at least six men had been murdered at 4315 Charlotte Street. Now, with the lack of any bodies from the suspected murders, preparing for trial was going to be a long and difficult process. The only victim that they knew for sure was Larry Pearson as they were able to confirm his identity with dental records that they had matched to the skull that they found in the backyard. Hmm. So um, they also had Berdella's handwritten notes detailing each one of the murders. So they were able to confirm that Berdella wrote those notes by using like a forensic handwriting comparison from all of the complaints Mm -hmm. he had made over the years to the city bylaw office. (laughs) Oh, shit. Gotcha, sucker. He's one of those guys. There was tissue that was still present on Larry Pearson's skull, and that was tested for drugs and was positive for traces of acepromazine and chlorpromazine, which we know were what Bob Berdella had in his house. Yeah. And there was no question that Bob knew Larry as he was the one who had paid his bail just a few weeks before he disappeared. Oh. So there was a bit of a paper All roads lead to Bob. Yeah. 
With all of that information on hand, the prosecution thought it was the safest bet to only take the murder of Larry Pearson to trial to ensure that Bordella would go away for life, at least mm-hmm. for Larry Pearson. Um, and if found guilty, he could have pot- potentially faced the death penalty. So right. now on August 3rd, 1988, Bob appeared before the court for his preliminary hearing. And Bob did not want to die. So to the shock of everyone in attendance... I think even his own lawyers, Bob entered a surprise guilty plea to the charge of first degree murder of Larry Pearson. Wow. Sung like a canary. Well, in order to avoid the death penalty, Bob agreed to provide a full confession to authorities on the deaths of the other five victims. In a 700 page confession, Bob would lay out every graphic detail of what he did to the complete horror of the investigators that were taking notes. Did you say 700 pages? Yeah. And someone had to write that out. And then type it, probably. Well, that's what I mean. Like, they're they're having to... Holy crap. Yeah. He deciphered every disgusting abbreviation of the torture methods he used on his victims for the investigators. So he took his notebook and, like... Decoded it? Decoded it for them. Yeah, they kept saying, and there was, like... uh, the book I read about it in this like one documentary that he had these sophisticated abbreviations and codes in this book. Like this dude is not the Zodiac killer. He just used poor shorthand because he was too lazy to write everything out. Like so gross. Don't give credit where credit is not due. Yeah, really. Um, he did, so he deciphered every abbreviation and finally everything that the butcher of Kansas City, which he hates being called or hated being called, had done to those poor men was laid bare for all to see. Huh. With his full confession down on paper, on December nineteenth, Bob would stand before a judge and acknowledge responsibility for the murder of each of the young men who died by his hands. Berdella would receive two life sentences without the possibility of parole and four conditional life sentences for second degree murder. Why? I don't hmm. know. Maybe no, because he wasn't intending on killing them. Maybe it was like he was trying to keep a sex slave forever and they died in the process. I don't know. Seems like that's that. pretty. But yeah. hey, they still got him. Yeah. Bob was moved to a maximum security prison where he would spend the rest of his life under protective custody. And he was known uh, to make complaints about his living conditions constantly. Constantly. Imagine someone like him gets fucking protective custody. That makes me so mad. And also imagine being the guard listening to these complaints. I'd be like, Bob, shove it up your ass. Like, fuck off. Yeah. He is like Clifford Olsen, remember? Clifford Olsen with the sex doll. I'm very upset that they will not give me a sex doll for my cell. Like, get fucked. Who are these people? They are. On October 8th, 1992, Berdella complained of chest pains and was taken to the hospital where he later died of a heart attack just four years after going to prison. That's bullshit. Four years? Yeah. He was only 43 years old, which is young. (laughs) Fucking bullshit. So while this case was going on, um, it became a media sensation in Kansas City. And like, I'm actually surprised that more people, that there's not more about this. You don't hear more about Bob Berdella because his crimes were so, so brutal at a time where all of these, all these big serial killers were out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is a few podcasts on this and um, some different YouTube videos and stuff, but there's really not a lot out there, especially about the lives of the victims. I wish I could find out more, could have found out more about them, mm-hmm. uh, but there really isn't. But 
this case was a media sensation and there were a lot of really weird things that happened during this. And one of the things was that a local radio DJ or radio station um, held a contest for like a song, a Bob Burdella songwriting contest. No, and then that's the DJ, disgusting. The DJ for that station wrote a song that was like to the tune of Mellow Yellow. No, they, <laughs> they call me Bob Burdella. Yeah. And I don't, that's all I am going to say about that. Pretty gross that people mm. thought that was appropriate by any stretch, considering I get it. Bob Berdella is disgusting and make fun of Bob Berdella all you want. But it's right at the time, like that's fresh. And those families of those victims are living mm-hmm. in that area and have to hear these things on the radio. Like this isn't fun. This isn't silly. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. And Bob, Bob Berdella hated all of the media attention. Um, he, mm-hmm was quoted in one of the very few interviews that he did with the press. He said, the papers and media have portrayed me as non-human. Their motivation is not separate in how I treated my victims. I treated them as non-human, nothing more than a play toy or a play object. That is what the media has done to me. Ooh, Crimea River Pub. Yeah, has, like, yeah, it has dehumanized. It has dehumanized me so that it can believe, along with the public, that things like human sacrifices, Satanism, demonic, pra- demonic practices, and are more believable than me being the neighbor next door who simply reached a point in life where he could do monstrous acts. This isn't the same thing as being a monster. Bob, you are <laughs> a monster. Like, he's like, listen, I did all this on my own. It wasn't Satan. Like, yeah. I'm responsible. <laughs> like, yeah. And also, he, and he's saying the way that they're depicting me in the press is making it look like I'm some scary demon, but I'm just the guy next door who did some bad shit. Like, Bob, do you want to understand that your crimes were next level? Next and, level. Like, yeah, I, I don't have words. <laughs> And he also, he blamed the police to some extent because they knew him. He was kind of on the radar. They knew he was up to something, he says, but nobody ever really looked into it. So he just kept doing it. And if it, if they had stepped in before, maybe he wouldn't have killed so many people. So it's their oh, fault. Not Bob's fault. It's Take accountability, fault. Bob, you sick yeah. fuck. And I'm going to name this episode the, the Butcher of Kansas City or the Kansas City Butcher or whatever he's nicknamed because he hated that. And yeah. fuck you, Bob Berdella, even though you're dead. Go Just to eat piss a, him off. Eat a butthole, Bob Berdella, because you are a piece of shit. Are... <laughs> I feel like that was like a pun somewhere in there. <laughs> yeah, somewhere. <laughs> anyway, so that is Bobby Berdella. May he rest Whoa. in distress. Or May ever. he rest in eternal fucking hell. Yeah. Where all he does is stub his toes on the corners of walls that have nails sticking out of them. So the nail goes right Ooh. under his toenail and causes him immense pain. And then and hits his by, funny bone. And gets stung by bees on his testicle. Mm, paper cuts in between his toes. Oh, yeah. And then vinegar baths. <laughs> I feel like we are reaching a Bob level. <laughs> <laughs> Bob deserves it. He deserves it. Totally does. Rest in peace to all the men that lost their lives at his hand that he had lured there with the probably guise of saying he was going to help them. So rest in peace. Um, I feel like I need like a cleansing shower and 
like Care Bears or something in my life right yeah, now. Go Google pictures of puppies. Actually, go Google I, pictures of Chow Chows because even though they were Bob Berdella's dogs, they are still very cute. They have like little balls. Of I mean, fur. you know, like I'm not gonna do that. Maybe I'll look at like pictures of rainbows or some shit. <laughs> okay. I don't know. Well, whatever, whatever <laughs> makes you happy. Um, I'm going to go and watch The Floor is Lava and oh. think about something that's not murder for a day. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, you follow us on Instagram at storycrimepod. You can send us an email at storycrimepod at gmail.com. And you can buy us a coffee at the link Ooh. in the show notes if anybody wants to buy us a coffee it just helps me to buy books for reading research so if anyone wants to help me out with that that would be lovely thank you so much <laughs> for listening everyone and we will see you next time bye, bye. bye.